You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Episode 301 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I live in Sandy Springs, Georgia, and work outside of academia. Joining me today are two actual factual academics, Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going? Oh, going pretty well. I'm actually in Franklin Springs today. Uh, Mary and the kids are on fall break, so I decided to come into the office and let them have the house. Well, that that uh, that sounds nice. It's 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 nice having an office outside of your house. I know. Yeah, yeah. Although I haven't uh, really seen much of it since February. Also joining us is David Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David, how's it going? Oh, uh, pretty decent. Well, before we get to our topic this week, what else is going on in the Christian Humanist Radio Network? Coming up, we've got a Christian feminist podcast on Dairy Girls. Uh, I assume this does not involve cattle, since it's not spelled that way. Uh, huh. But I honestly have no idea what the reference is, so I'll look forward Dairy to Dairy Girls uh, is, a, is an Irish tel- coming-of-age television show on Netflix. Well, there you go. Uh, we also have a Christian Humanist Profiles interview with Matthew Emerson. David, uh, Yeah. How, how did that go? Uh, that was... Uh... That that w- was a good conversation. Um, I would have liked for it to be a little bit longer, but uh, we were pressed for time on the front end of it with with me, and on the back end of it with him. So, um, but nonetheless, a conversation about uh, a, a a book of essays that he edited. Um, called Baptist in the Christ- and the Christian Tradition. So, yeah, sort of a, what, it, what, what might uh, moves toward a ressourcement look like for Baptists. Very good. And I believe that's what we've got on the network, Michael. Well, great. Our episode today is uh, something that was suggested to me by my Catholic sponsor, Joe. Uh, he wanted us to do another episode on G.K. Chesterton. Actually, a sequel, he said, to the Father Brown episode that you guys did uh, when I was on uh, when I was on sabbatical a few years ago. Uh, I wasn't part of that, so I'm glad to be able to talk about Chesterton. Uh, Joe and I talked back and forth, and it turned out that the book he had read that I thought would be a good episode is uh, Chesterton's weird little novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. And I want to warn our listeners that we're going to spoil the living hell out of this novel. And it's actually <laughs> very, very spoilable. Um, it, it has a twist ending that I, I don't know that you could see coming. So if you're interested in uh, in being surprised by that ending, uh, 
maybe you want to put this episode on hold go read the novel which is available i believe on gutenberg and uh, and come back and listen after that on the other hand i first heard of this novel uh from frederick beekner who writes about it in a lot of places and spoils it every time he writes about it so certainly the novel is still enjoyable even if you know the twist um and actually in some ways the novel is no less surprising and bewildering if you know the twist so you know it's up to you but we're not going to make any kind of effort to um to to not spoil the man who was thursday rosebud is actually <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> oh man and he was dead the whole time that's right and and well that's a that's a coming up on our uh halloween crossover so <laughs> Uh, did either of you know the ending of this novel before you read it? No, I read it for the first time for this podcast. Really? You'd never read it before? Nope. nope. Wow. Nathan's okay. position on Chesterton is, uh, you know, well documented on this podcast. <laughs> His anti-Chesterton I have a, position. I, I've read a fair bit of Chesterton, so I feel that I've earned it. Okay. Yeah. It was not. Well, it was I'm not like... an opinion formed in isolation of the subject. <laughs> I want to start by talking about the protagonist of this novel, uh, Gabriel Syme. Seem? I don't know how you guys pronounced it in your head. I say Syme. Simi. <laughs> Simi however Gabriel. You however you pronounce it, he is pretty clearly an XB for Chesterton himself. Uh, we encounter Syme after he has gone through some kind of rebellion against rebellion in the course of which he's become a conservative out of something like disgust for revolutions. Uh, David, what is Chesterton trying to say about conservatism uh, with, with that weird passage? And is he critiquing Syme or is he praising him? Oof. Well, let's, I guess, first consider, consider the words. If, if, if our listener listens to, uh, listeners listen of course they do if our listeners hear what you're they do that too your description or your summary of what chesterton said and they might think oh well that seems strong no that's that's exactly what he says uh in chapter four you have to get four chapters in before you actually get some sense of who the person is that you've been following for the first three chapters uh it describes him as uh, he has a his hatred of anarchy is not hypocritical. He is one of those who are driven early in life into too conservative an attitude by the bewildering folly of most revolutionists. He had not attained it by any tame tradition. His respectability was spontaneous and sudden, a rebellion against rebellion. He came of a family of cranks in which all the oldest people had all the newest notions. And so, surrounded with every kind of revolt from infancy, Gabriel had to revolt into something, so he revolted into the only thing left, sanity. <laughs> so, that is a very, very Chestertonian uh, description right there. Um, just, the, just the language of it. But, uh, this is not the same as having been traditional. Uh, that point where he says he has not attained he has not attained it by any tame tradition, uh, that's an important point. Uh, this is someone who comes to a stance, not someone who is formed in a stance. If that makes sense. 
and that sort of thing makes a difference for Chesterton because uh, if you read if you read Chesterton widely, um, I think you find him to be someone who came to a stance and was not um, was not brought up in the stance, and so he brings with him something of uh, something other than a, a, a sort of uh, complacent or serene acceptance of of a tradition that's not what he has uh, and so his his XB here as you call it uh, his his surrogate in the novel Gabriel Syme also uh, is not a complacent character uh, the description he gives there was just enough in Gabriel there was just enough in him of the blood of these fanatics to make even his protest for common sense a little too fierce to be sensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, uh, he has an experience uh, with what we would call a, a terrorist attack, a bombing. Um, and then after that, he went about as usual, quiet, courteous, rather gentle, but there was a spot on his mind that was not sane. He did not regard anarchists, as most of us do, as a handful of morbid men combining ignorance with intellectualism. <laughs> he regarded them as a huge and pitiless peril, like a Chinese invasion. So, there's something about Gabriel Syme's conservatism that isn't just traditionalism. Um, he, he actually still thinks in much the same way as the revolutionist, as the uh, the the reactionary, the radical, the rebel, um, but he's a rebel against the rebels. Uh, I don't think he's praising Syme necessarily. Like, I I don't think that Chesterton is necessarily presenting the stance as a good thing when he's when he calls him not quite sane. Um, that's. You know, I, I I I can't I can't imagine that he means that as a good thing. Um, well, especially given the importance that sanity has in this novel as a description of the the kind of anti-anarchist yes. position, conservatism and sanity are almost um, synonymous for Chesterton. Yes. Uh, but Syme is not is not sane, and the way that he is not sane is particularly in the way that he uh, misapprehends the nature of the struggle and the nature of the threat, if, if, if that seems to represent it. Uh, praising Syme, he does praise him because he seems to, because he is opposed to and resists the sorts of things that Chesterton would have us resist and oppose, but at the same time, I think he is still being honest in presenting Syme, uh, I think, right, as you say, Michael, uh, as a kind of reference looking back at himself and recognizing that he's not wholly sane in some of the ways that he undertakes his uh, quixotic battle uh, fights for sanity. Um, there's something, well, I mean, in the word quixotic. Uh, Chesterton loves that word, by the way. Um, but the very word itself implies that there's something in the nature of that quest that isn't isn't quite right even if it's aimed at defending something that is quite right Nathan what would you add to that uh, about the only thing that I'd add is that as a 
text. This is an inherently conservative text, even as uh, Gabriel Simi, I actually just made that up, but now I can't stop thinking it. Um, it actually you know, is pronounced Syme, because he says late in the novel that it, it sounds like same if you said it with a Cockney accent. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Nice. Uh, but uh, it, it takes on a a fairly con- a, a fairly common, there we go, conservative attitude that uh, conservatism isn't necessarily an idea uh, that has to be dreamed up, but rather it is something that one comes to uh, when one has grown out of having ideas. Uh, so, you know, even Gabriel himself, uh, you know, because he is possessed of the idea of anti-anarchism, uh, he is not quite mature yet, and what's eventually going to make him mature is when he realizes that the struggle against anarchism is itself a, an idea and therefore uh, is something that you have to, uh, you know, just lay back on if you're ever going to reach maturity. Do you know if this novel was important to Roger Scruton, Nathan? Oh, I think it's got to be. I mean, I, really, I mean, I, I heard Scruton in here. And even more than that, I heard C.S. Lewis in here. I, I heard every yeah. character from The Great Divorce, or at least huh. every, every hellbound character from Great Divorce, uh, who every one of them is possessed of a single great idea. Uh, and, you know, depending on their ability and will to release that idea, they either get to heaven or they don't. <laughs> I, I was just thinking Scruton, because his own kind of conversion story if you want to call it that and i think he probably would have called it that is that he was um a a liberal and then in 1968 the student protests in france were so outrageous that they turned him into a conservative and that that seems to be a very similar track that gabriel syme takes here and i'm going to call him gabriel syme because i say gabriel marcel 30 times a day (laughs) <laughs> it's it's also re- reminiscent of the story that uh, Alan Bloom tells in uh, Closing of the American Mind. Sure. Well, and, and all those neocons became conservative because they felt like liberalism had gone crazy. And even now, you hear people say, well, I've always voted Democrat, but the Democrats have moved so far left that I'm going to vote for Trump. And, and I've always voted Republican, but Trump is so crazy that I'm going to vote Democrat now. So it's, it's still like a, a, a reason people give for changing their path oh the other side is insane so i'm gonna have to cross to this side of the street right right what interests me about this coming to it without tradition is i i think of gabriel syme as a guy who who like learned a language on his own by buying a grammar of it and and just kind of working it out which means he knows the language well, and yet he's never really spoken it to another person. And, 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 and so much of this novel is about him kind of learning to be friends, and, and, and that's like learning to be friends in sanity. He thinks he's entirely alone in the world, and the twist in the novel, since we haven't revealed it yet, and we may as well, is that he is working, he, he, he goes undercover into this anarchist ring, and it turns out every other person in the ring is also an undercover police detective. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so there's, there's a sense in which he feels like he's alone in the world, and yet he's not alone in the world at all. It turns out there are far fewer revolutionaries than he originally thinks they are, and, and people are much more commonsensical than he thinks they are. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair reading of his conservatism? 
Yeah, I think so. And I and you know, it reminds me of of some some rare and happy occurrences uh in which, you know, I I was being sized up and was sizing up other people at academic conferences and then at some point we both realized that uh neither of us especially likes the company we're keeping. <laughs> or it's a little like the dance uh every every conservative Christian I know has had to do for the last 4 years when they make friends with other conservative Christians. Which is, uh, does this person support Trump or not? <laughs> I was thinking of the exquisite dance of the of the Christian in graduate school. Yeah, that too. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And in all these cases, right, the threat is not as much as we think it is because th- there are relatively few monsters in the world. Except at academic conferences. That's true. Uh I bought my copy of The Man Who Was Thursday on our trip to England last year. Ours meaning mine and Victoria's, not the three of us. Although if, you, the, if the two of you ever want to go to England, that would be fun. Um, I, uh, I read most of this novel for the first time while I was riding around in the London Underground, which seems really appropriate to me because this is very much a novel of and about London. Nathan, how does Chesterton make use of that real world setting and how does he turn the real world into an illusion? The real world setting is almost opaque to me because I've never been to London. Uh, it's so very, I, very accurate in terms of geography from well, everything I've read. What I did recognize, I recognize from other books I've read that are also set in London. So, uh, you know, as far as a hypertext, it works quite nicely. <laughs> um, you know, insofar as they remain in a place that we would recognize as London, I mean, there's lots of back alleys. There's lots of back rooms. Uh, it's definitely a London... Uh, that is not necessarily uh, museums and monuments so much as it is shops and bars and restaurants and, you know, sort of day-to-day sorts of places. So, I mean, uh, even though I have never been to London and even though the names of the places I only recognize from other books, I could basically place myself imaginatively in the city of London uh, that he was unfolding. Now, the nightmare character of it, uh, which we're going to talk about, you know, in its own right here in a little bit, is that uh, the scale of things never sits still. Uh, so, I mean, you know, characters might cross two-thirds of the city in an instant, or it might take 15 pages to cover 100 meters. Uh, right. So, you know, this is a, uh, it, it's a novel that, you know, uses the scale of things to, uh, create that sense of madness, to create that sense of illusion like we talked to, like we talked about, pardon me. And really, I mean, towards the end of the novel, uh, when, the, when the action travels outside the city of London and out into the country, that's when the scale of things just really gets squirrely because at that point, I mean, they are chasing hot air balloons and sometimes they're on roads and sometimes they're not. And the hot air balloon is France? very... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's that. That that's the illusion character in my mind. I mean, David, are there other particular moments that you would point to? I, it, from the beginning of the story, there is this. Uh, there is this sense that the scale is there. It it's also the ways that he creates. Uh, strange and estranging resemblances through his metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, when he sees the steam launch, you know, as uh, Gabriel Syme has managed to finagle 
um, an underground cell of anarchists to elect him as their chief and representative. Uh, he leaves that secret meeting uh, to ride on a steam launch uh, on the Thames, and the it is described as a baby dragon with one red eye. <laughs> a dark and dwarfish steam launch, baby dragon with one red eye. Um, that is, uh, you know, that that comparison um, makes it makes it mythic in a sense. Uh, he describes the effect of the light when he goes out. Uh, it seemed the landscape of a new land, even the landscape of a new planet. Um, the moonlight had the sense not of bright moonlight, but of dead daylight. You know, kind of that that imaginative transition. Um, and also the ways that he, uh, he reimagines even the ordinary things that he carries in this landscape. Uh, it would not be remarkable for someone necessarily to have walked around London at that time with a pistol in his pocket. This was before the firearm laws. But uh, that pistol in his pocket now suddenly becomes something more and something symbolic. He has a cane with a sword in it that now represents chivalry. And uh, all, of the, all of the ordinary things that he carries with him make the, make the ordinary landscape around him also a landscape of, of fantasy and magic. Um, and that's a very Chestertonian move too. The description of what he calls Saffron Park, um, but it, which is based on the suburb called um, Bedford Park, I, I think his description of it at the beginning of the novel really, really gets at his technique. Uh, the suburb of Saffron Park lay on the sunset side of London, as red and ragged as a cloud of sunset. It was built of a bright brick throughout, its skyline was fantastic, and even if it, even its ground plan was wild. It had been the outburst of a speculative builder, faintly tinged with art, who called its architecture sometimes Elizabethan and sometimes Queen Anne, apparently under the impression that the two sovereigns were identical. It was described <laughs> with some justice as an artistic colony, though it never in any definable way produced any art. But although its pretensions to be an intellectual center were a little vague, its pretensions to be a pleasant place were quite indisputable. The place was not only pleasant, but perfect if once he could regard it not as a deception, but rather as a dream. Even if the people were not artists, the whole was nevertheless artistic. That young man with the long auburn hair and the impudent face, that man was not really a poet, but surely he was a poem. That old gentleman with the wild white beard and the wild white hat, that venerable humbug was not really a philosopher, but at least he was the cause of philosophy and others, and so forth. So you have this... Um, you have this physical location that is somehow the product of the human imagination, even more so than most cities are, and also like the cause of imagination. It's very, it's a very, very metaphysical place um, and, and not at all metaphysical in the way that the people who live in it imagine it to be metaphysical. Mm -hmm. And I think he treats all of London this way, probably most notably in the scene where he's running away um, from oh I forget which um, which conspirator it is it's the first guy pick a day of the trust. week yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's the old the old man who's not really an old man um, and and all of a sudden it starts snowing and he looks up and there's Saint Paul's Cathedral and he feels he feels like that is at the center of London and kind of grounding everything else around it it's real even though everything that's happening is so incredibly fantastic. Mm -hmm. 
there's a collection of essays that he wrote for magazines and newspapers and God knows where uh, that was collected under the title Tremendous Trifles. And it's one of my favorite of his essay collections. And in it, he has an essay in which he simply empties the contents of his pockets and talks about what the mundane things he happens to have with him represent. Uh, and so his box of matches becomes, you know, the discovery of fire and the taming of nature and Prometheus, you know, stealing flame from the gods and giving it to humans. And it becomes all of these things, you know, uh, the coin becomes the image of politics and commerce and art all rolled up into one. Uh, that's the sort of person who's writing this novel. So uh, as he's walking around, he's going to just sort of sprinkle that Chestertonian fairy dust on everything and make it amazing. One of his most fun qualities, I think. Yeah. It was weird being in London for the first time and also reading this novel that takes London very literally and also takes it as a metaphor. That is cool. I, I would have um, loved to have that experience. The uh, the pub where he meets the old man in um, is is a, is a real pub, I'm pretty sure, because I looked it up on a map, and, and the pub we went to is right there. It's called the Ye Old Cheshire Cheese, and it's this, like, it survived the fire of London, I believe. It's that old. And it, it and Chesterton hung out in it, and, and, like, that place itself seems like a metaphor. And maybe, maybe that's just an American talking about Europe in general, because everything is so old. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of stuff that's centuries and centuries and centuries older than any surviving human habitation in in North America, or at least in in the United States of America. And and so so I I think I think this this novel can be set there in a way that they it couldn't be set even in the oldest parts of the U.S. That makes sense. The threat uh, forever lurking in the shadows of this novel is anarchism, which is apt to seem kind of a silly and overblown villain to us, I suspect. But it was certainly terrifying to Chesterton's original audience. What modern day forces and ideas might assume a similar sinister shape for us as anarchism did for readers in 1908? And how might this novel help us to address them in our own lives? Well, I think this is a question that, uh, for which our, our, our listeners are probably already supplying their own answers. Um, as someone who was, who was in college uh, on uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, well, we had uh, Al-Qaeda in the back of our mind for years and years thereafter. Um, and even uh, when new groups arose with new names, you know, uh, they all seem to sort of blend together. Uh, and they were and are real. Um, there really are groups and really were in Chesterton's time uh, groups who were willing to um, set bombs for random citizens uh, in order to achieve political change in some indeterminate way um that 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 was a real experience then and has been pretty much through the through the 20th century and into the 21st that's not the point um chesterton's point is not that the anarchists 
aren't real. They are real. And he had an experience of real dangerous anarchists doing a real and dangerous thing. Um, the, the point is the way in which that swelled to become this uh, almost kind of Manichaean dark force against which uh, Syme is the, the white knight of sanity uh, arrays himself. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that we see. It's a feature in, in our political rhetoric today, but it has been a feature in our political rhetoric for a very, very long time. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up uh, in, the, in the orbit of people who were, you know, John Birchers, right? Uh, so today, today's, you know, kind of obsession with riots on one side, obsession with white supremacist on, supremacist on the other side, and then riffing off into, you know, sort of venturing off into QAnon or ever more hysterical Nazi analogies, or if you're going to go far enough to say it's reptilians in the Illuminati and reptilians are the Illuminati and page Danny Anderson. Um, this is, I mean, this is such a common feature of, of our climate, but it's not new. It's, it's always been here. Um, but it, it, it's a, it's a mode of thinking that, that waxes and wanes. Um, I think with just our general sense of fear, it finds a focus in these, in these ideas. So what is the man of, who is Thursday give us to help address them? These are a few things that I thought I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear what y'all see. Um, the first is that, and this is the main plot of the novel, there is a plot, and it isn't QAnon, and it isn't Reptilians. <laughs> it isn't even the real and secret actions of intelligence agencies and terrorist cells. It's this greater secret that there is a God who is working his ends through the days of creation towards Sabbath. And those ends are inscrutable and terrifying, mysterious, and beautiful. Um, and that is the real secret the whole time. So there is a secret and there is a plot, but these other, these other merely human, merely political, merely ideological plots um, that frighten us, they're vastly smaller things. But that has that great line about how Sunday, who is maybe God, probably God, you know, his jokes are I mean, so he, he big. speaks as Jesus. Yeah. Yes. But he, the, his his jokes are so big that nobody could see them coming. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 is a that is a way that is a Chestertonian way of saying providence. I think, um, the uh, yeah, yeah jo jokes in history. I feel like there's something about that in orthodoxy. Anyway, um, the other thing is is humanization. Uh, Syme's first experience when he joins the high council of anarchists is that everyone at the table with him is a monster who leads him in, into some kind of different metaphysical speculation about the deep ways that philosophy can drive us in unnaturally mad. But when the other members of the anarchist council are unmasked one by one, Syme finds out that they aren't the inhuman symbols that he'd made them out to be. They're just human. They're also policemen, but I mean, 
but just sort of roll with it. There's something about unmasking the ideological other and finding another human being who is pursuing a different vision of the good, thank you, Plato, um, that helps work past a kind of Syme-style conspiracy panic, right? Uh, it is true that there are people whose vision of the good leads them to do horrifying things to others. And sometimes using force and defense is the only possible way that you can respond to the attack of force. So I'm not going to say, you know, a conversation solves everything. But making that Socratic shift of identifying even very wrong-headed opponents as fellow seekers of the good in their own fashion, who can be engaged with dialectic and possibly led, or lead us, who knows, to a better vision of the good, um, that, that's, a, that's a very good thing. It's, it's very, very close to the love that casts out fear. Um, it's very, very close to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, uh, I, I think that unmasking the enemy and finding a human behind the mask is, uh, a good thing. And beyond that, the anarchists are so incredibly stupid. Uh, I want to, <laughs> I just want to, I want to address that reality in this novel because, I mean, you know, almost the opening gag of the thing is that uh, by a few uh, rhetorical tricks, uh, you know, Syme is able to trick this anarchist gathering into electing him, the undercover cop, uh, their representative, their Thursday. Uh, and then, I mean, to the extent that the undercover detectives uh, retain ideas and, you know, don't turn loose of them, they also become stupid because they all think, that each of the other ones uh, is an anarchist leader rather than another undercover cop. So again, I, 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 I like David's take on this because it reminds me to read charitably. Uh, I, 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 frankly, I was getting allergies from all of the straw men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to me that the, the anarchist who, who puts a bomb in the mailbox isn't really what chesterton's afraid of right he's afraid of the one who he's afraid of nihilism and and yes his con, and sime's concern about the anarchy council is that they're uh, i don't know how do you have a how do you have a council of anarchists is that they're the ones standing behind the people throwing the bombs and saying you know let's let's remove god let's remove even the notion of good and evil and that's what he's so afraid of but there's only one person in the novel who actually wants that, you know, I mean, all the people who seem to want that don't want it at all. Um, they're just saying they do in order to whatever. And, and the only person who does want it is this one kind of sad poet, uh, Gregory, uh, who's actually the first character we made in the novel, this, this kind of redheaded devil figure, but he's not terribly threatening. He's even less effective than the other members of the Anarchy Council, and his poetry sounds lousy, too. So well, and he's not... the one who gets conned into letting Syme become Thursday. Because, because he doesn't want to betray him, which is... That, that shows you that even he is not the anarchist he claims to be. Because, I mean... A, right. A, 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 I, a, a certain but, line from Big Lebowski comes to mind. There you go. Um, so, 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 so there's this sense that there is evil in the world and there are evil ideas, but 
again, far fewer people hold them than we assume do. And even the people who look like they hold them might not. Or maybe definitely don't. Mm -hmm. Or certainly when they, or when they hold that, that view that we would, that we would phrase in one way, they would phrase it in a different way that if we, that if we looked at their side and read the sentence as they were writing it, we would see, ah, here's, here is someone attempting to, to achieve a vision of the good that could be an intel, you know, intelligible in a particular kind of way. Let's go there. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is part of what, you know, still grates on my nerves when I read Chesterton is that I think that that has a tendency, not a, nece- not a necessary progress, listeners, but a tendency to melt into a sort of soft-minded relativism you know, well, I mean, there's good in all of it. You know, the real problem is when you take it too seriously. It's just weird to think of anybody calling Chesterton a relativist. And yet he makes that move in orthodoxy over and over again. You know, the, uh, the pacifist and the crusader. Well, you know, they both basically got a good idea going. They just take it too far. I mean, is 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 ma is the the notion of moderation the same as relativism? I don't know. I don't think that it is, but I think that Chesterton slides into the latter. Hmm. 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 But I'm I'm also the uh, I, I'm also the redheaded poet in this uh, trio, so <laughs> I'll, I'll let I'll let you two speak more authoritatively on it. That's true. Yeah, speak of the devil. Um, I'm with Syme. I think the London Underground is the most poetic thing ever. Whatever else this novel is, it's an adventure novel. And like all adventure novels, it implicitly posits a set of virtues that the hero needs to have or to develop in order to survive the adventure. I'm going to suggest that the two major ones are courage and common sense. Uh, Nathan, what do you think about that? What am I leaving out? Well, first of all, I think that a hero who develops common sense isn't much of a hero. Uh, you know, I mean, I think of the great his- heroic stories as the figures who rail against what is common uh, and rise above what is common. So it's interesting that I, I, I think you're right that uh, Syme develops common sense over this over the course of this novel. But I don't think of it as an adventure story as much as I think of it as a subversion of an adventure story. And in fact, to the extent that Syme tries to rise above the lunacy of anarchism, as we've already discussed, uh, he becomes a, a more and more silly figure. Uh, so, you know, the, the virtues that he, he does develop, you know, courage in the face of this threat. Well, it turns out that it's not a threat, so there's no need for the courage. So it doesn't make any sense. So I, if, if I could reframe it and then you two can correct me on this, because once again, I am the least apt reader of Chesterton on this podcast, uh, and it's not close. Uh, I would think of this more like one of James Joyce's or Flannery O'Connor's epiphany stories, where the protagonist uh, is very convinced, uh, in this case, of his virtues, and is convinced that it is only these virtues that will save the world, but then the character discovers that the virtues 
are in a way vices that must be burned away. And of course I'm going to, you know, uh, the dead by James Joyce and revelation by Flannery O'Connor here. They need to be burned away in order for the person to receive not as an agent, but as a patient, the salvation that awaits at the end. So mm. I have probably completely missed the point of this novel. I often do when I read Chesterton. Uh, David, correct me. I like the idea of uh, comparing it to the the Flannery O'Connor Epiphany novel because certainly this this requires uh, Gabriel Syme begins the story believing himself to be one of the few people who can see what is. Right, right. And this is, I mean, this is Molly Bloom from Joyce. This is uh, Holga from Flannery O'Connor. Yes. Yeah. But as he goes, what he is exposed to does in some sense make no, make nonsense of at least a, a certain part of the way that he thought of the world, but not in a way that he finds completely alienating. Mm -hmm. um, you see the way that uh, in the denouement that each of the six days has a reaction to the epiphany has a reaction to the, the revelation of Sunday. And some of them complain. Some of them desperately want more information. But Syme has a perspective that does not, he doesn't, he recognizes that he doesn't fully understand what he's learned at the end of the novel. But he sees it as, in some sense, the fulfillment and a, a necessary correction by fulfillment of what he had thought earlier that it is a it is a completion it is a metamorphosis towards maturity of what he had thought before um so i think in in a certain kind of way we're meant to have a sympathy with where he begins not because it's the ultimately true ending point but because the ending point is uh, more, more parallel with where he starts in a certain kind of way. If that if, if that makes sense, I'm 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 trying to figure out better ways to say this, and I don't know if I'm succeeding. I think what I would say is that Syme feels he sees through the kind of anarchy of the world and intuits this common sense thing that there is a meaning to the world. And what he discovers is, yeah, the world is more orderly than he possibly could have known. But that order is itself a kind of chaos, right? I mean, the way Sunday behaves um, in, in the in the late part of this novel is, is really, really bizarre. And yet it, it is all in the service of this very orderly pageant of creation that takes place at Sunday's estate in the final chapters. Uh, so it's like you look at the world and it appears to have no order. But if you're a conservative, if you're a Chestertonian, you intuit that there's an order. But when you actually start to examine the order that you intuit, it seems even more chaotic, even more anarchic than it did before. And it's only after all of that that you find the true order of the world, which you can neither express nor explain. Well, it's a conspiracy. It's a it's a comparison between 
the the hidden order of the Manichaean, which the conspiracy theorists form of order is almost necessarily Manichaean, right? Right. Um, it's, it's never a positive conspiracy, is it? It's never like, oh, it's a conspiracy to make everybody in the world happy. Yay. <laughs> but, I mean, the conspiracy at the heart of this novel is a conspiracy for good, is a conspiracy to make everybody happy. But it is also a revelation that in some way Sunday has also been behind both sides of a real conflict right. in, a, in a way that is difficult to resolve. Uh, in a way that, well, I mean, we got to bring we got we you have to bring Job into the conversation, right? Um, it, it's th- this is this is a conspiracy in which you don't find revealed the ultimate two powers that are battling behind everything. Instead, you pull back the curtain, and there's one person pulling levers levers on both sides. And that kind of how do you justify the ways of God uh, to men? Um, uh, how do you how do you deal with that? You know how how are we going to formulate it? The problem of evil or the problem of Job? Um, how are we going to uh, formulate that? This is I think an imaginative way of discovering that ultimately the, the conspiracy is not a dualist conspiracy. Um, and that, that is the thing that most of the days of the week at the end of the book have a hard time swallowing or accepting. Syme says something toward the end. And, and when he says it, it's, it's a moment when Sunday slips away from Chesterton Sunday's not this this vision of God anymore. He's like a vision of all of existence. But here's what Syme says. That has been for me the mystery of Sunday, and it is also the mystery of the world. When I see the horrible back, I am sure the noble face is but a mask. When I see the face for but for an instant, I know the back is only a jest. Bad is so good that we cannot but think good an accident. I'm sorry. Bad is so bad that we cannot but think good an accident. Good is so good that we feel certain that evil could be explained. Yeah. Yeah. I, that that's a great that's a great passage for kind of getting at what I think what I think Chesterton is trying to esca- excavate here. But I think I mean, what what you said was Sunday kind of gets away from him. I think there are ways in which this the story gets away from him. And as you are invited to consider these things, which are topics of sober theology, um, I think it would be a kind of mistake to then try to take, ah, to, to, to take that moment of recognition and say, ah, this is a, this is a topic of sober theology. And then to return to the text as if it's going to be an allegory that in some sense, maps onto that the conversations of that sober theological point um well i'm gonna call an audible at that point and and skip a question and come back to it because i think you're really leading into this this question i want to ask nathan 
Nathan, um, years ago on this podcast, I think in one of the first three or four episodes, said that whenever he reads Chesterton, he feels like he's trying to sell him something, which I, I think is a way of saying that his fiction is nearly always didactic. Even the detective fiction is didactic. Um, but the moral lesson in The Man Who Was Thursday is um, difficult to discern is probably a nice way to put it. Is there one? Is is Chesterton trying to sell you something here, Nathan? Is he is he aiming at something other than a lesson? Does it just get away from him? Is the novel's ending so weird that he can't use it for his didactic purposes? I think he brings it around at the end. And once again, I'm, I'm willing to be instructed here. But I think that the fundamentally conservative moral lesson of this novel is the same that you get at the end of an Aristophanes or a Shakespeare comedy, uh, namely that those who seek to impose themselves on the world are fools and those who roll with it are wise and everyone is restored at the end so it doesn't really matter much. Uh, and the figure that I point to here is, is Lucian Gregory, right? Because he is the loose end. He is the one who at the beginning uh, seemed to be a convinced anarchist uh, he's the one who, by the end, is the only convinced anarchist left. Uh, and he rails at uh, Syme, and Syme rails back at him. And then, uh, you know, Sunday gives that, you know, fundamentally Jovian answer. Uh, you don't get to ask that question. Uh, and then they take a walk and have tea together, and then the novel ends. So at the end, I mean, you know, everything is restored to basically the order that it was in the beginning. Uh, and, you know, for that reason, I mean, I, I, once again, I see the, the upshot of this novel is that, you know, yes, the anarchists, and by the end of the novel, the anarchist, singular, Lucy and Gregory is a fool, uh, but so are the people who created an entire wing of Scotland Yard to combat anarchist ideas, because by the end of the novel, the only thing left of anarchism is this red-headed poet who at the end doesn't even have the energy to be an anarchist anymore so i you know i i don't think that it is a a direct um didactic lesson uh but i do think that at least by implication uh the notion is is fairly clear that you know people who again have ideas and think that the world ought to be otherwise are fundamentally fools and you know uh, again, that, that rubs me the wrong way, but I, I'm convinced every time that I read Chesterton that there are Chestertonians in the world and I ain't one of them. <laughs> David, you got anything to add to that? Uh, just to extend what I'd been saying before, uh, that he seems that that it would be a mistake to to try to uh, get some kind of allegorical key and translate this into the mode of theology and argument. Yeah, it's um, not Pilgrim's Progress. It's not Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, instead, to take seriously what Chesterton has been saying in practically every paragraph since the beginning of the book, which is that there are some things that you really need a poetic imagination to see. And what this is presenting is something, something more like a poetic answer than a, uh, than an argument to the questions that it raises at the end. Uh, in the same way that 
the question is asked at the very end, have you ever suffered? And the face of Sunday expands and expands and expands and says, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? And so the, the, the question is answered with a question that is itself a quote and a vision. And that's it. Um, and we could say... And then they uh, go for a walk and have tea. And then they go for a walk <laughs> and have tea. <laughs> um, and you could say, oh, so he is suggesting that, that the resolution of the problem of evil is um, the, the incarnation and the sufferings of the incarnate God upon the cross. And, 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 and he would probably nod, but then he would say, say something like, but put that into the form of poetry <laughs> and you'll be right. closer to saying it right. Right. It's, it seems like there's this mystery at the heart of the world, a mystery rather than chaos at the heart of the world. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a poem um, called uh, the, the, the hound of heaven. Um, by uh, a poet named Francis Thompson, uh, who at the, at the end of the poem, he asks, he asks a lot of questions that are, that, that remind me of the sorts of things, uh, you, that passage that you read where uh, he looks at, he looks at Sunday's back and he gets one, he has one impression of who Sunday is and what his intentions are. And then he sees Sunday's face and he has a completely opposite uh, impression. Um, in the last stanza, it, the poet who the, the poet speaking in the lyric asks, "Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly?" And the whole uh, that that whole idea that is is the shadow under which I labor actually the shadow of a hand that is reaching out to to caress um that is a, a again that is a poetic way of of getting at that problem of uh of the experience of a pain the experience of a suffering um that might on some other level uh on some divine in some in some divine way be connected to an intention and to a purpose that is for good um but I think that the poetry is my gloom after all shade of his hand outstretched caressingly that lands on my soul in a very different way than sober sentences of Calvinist theology, if that makes sense. And, and there's something I, I, I find the end of man who was Thursday in some sense, soul satisfying in a way that a sober statement of dogma doesn't necessarily, um, so, I don't know. Maybe this is maybe this is a way in which uh, we are seeing um, Chesterton Chesterton's artistic side expressed, saying that we can't leave the artistry out, that the artists see something or see things in a way that we don't necessarily, and that artistic vision um, is also a truth that needs to be accounted for. Well, right, and the novel begins with an argument about what poetry does, whether poetry belongs to order yeah. or chaos. Yes. 
The Man Who Was Thursday is subtitled A Nightmare, and Chesterton insisted that people didn't pay close enough attention to that subtitle. Uh, we've already talked about some of them, but what are the dreamlike qualities of this novel, beginning but not ending, with that bizarro ending? Well, you've already mentioned that that's the point at which the novel begins, uh, with this description of a neighborhood uh, that he uh, he sums up with a sentence uh, that says, The place was not only pleasant, but perfect, if once he could regard it not as a deception, but rather as a dream. And that that is part of it. Um, uh, the, the moving from, to what, in, in the, the changes of appearances, the, appear, the realities concealed beneath appearances, um, accepting them as dream instead of resenting them as deception, um, is is I think a theme that runs through runs through the novel. Uh, the the passage that you referenced earlier, um, in which he sees uh, the he sees Sunday running away from him, and Syme says, "I was suddenly possessed with the idea uh, that the blind blank back of his head really was his face, an awful eyeless face staring at me, and I fancied that the figure running in front of me was really a figure running backwards and dancing as he ran. And his friend says, horrible. <laughs> right, like that, that's, a, that's a nightmare image. Um, the face that is, the, the back of a head that is a face. Um, the running forward that is backwards. That's, that's, that's dream logic. And a lot of this is working by dream logic. They chase him up to a wall and then they climb over the wall and it's a zoo. Like that's, that's dreams, right? You, you know, where in the dream, there seems to be, you know, this, this sober logic. But when you wake up, you're like, why did I walk out my front porch into a lake? Or like the, the the morning the morning he first meets with the anarchist council, it's it's warm enough to sit outside and then there's a blizzard by like three PM. Yeah. Yeah. Which can happen uh, in Chicago, but I think more often it happens in dreams. Yes. So I really don't know in the end how to take this novel in the sense of uh, it, it, that that the old tried and true twist, it was all a dream, doesn't really quite work because you have to sort of find the seam, not the sign, but the seam. Like, where's the point at which the dream starts? Where's the point where the dream ends? It's not neat like Alice in Wonderland. Um, but, but yeah, that, that dream logic runs throughout it. And then in particular passages too, David, I mean, you have... Uh, you know, as he encounters each of the days of the week, uh, you know, there's one in which he is being pursued and no matter how fast he runs, this hobbling old man keeps up with him. And then in another one, he fights, but he's unable to wound his opponent. And in another one, he flees and his pursuers multiply. They become more numerous as he continues to flee. And oh, in yeah. each of those, there, there's, a, there's an ex post facto explanation for it. Uh, but the 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 rising tension of each of those episodes is definitely nightmarish in its character. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the elephant. <laughs> yes, yes, the elephant. 
Yeah. Very, uh, very cool and very dreamlike. Um, or like the, is... the, the, the scene where they're all chasing Sunday and he's writing them notes. And yes. Right. Individualized and, notes. Yes. Right. Which, which you keep expecting to be explained, but never are. And I mean, that, that too feels very dreamlike. These, these statements that seem to have great gravity, but don't actually mean anything. Yeah. And, and each of them looks at the note that he's received and has some kind of reaction that isn't just complete bewilderment. You know, that some of them are described as looking at the note and, 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 ha- and their face taking on this sense of like resolve or something. And I'm like, I was like, that's hilarious. Right. As if that, as if to them, that actually did mean something. But, but again, I mean, that's, but they don't much, say that's very much how you respond to things in dreams. These stupid statements that, that don't make any sense when you're in that dream world make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember how I felt the first time I read this. Uh, the only Chesterton that I'd ever read up to that point was Father Brown. And so as soon as he introduced a sort of secret policeman conspiracy you know, sort of thing. I was expecting, I was expecting just a straight spy novel with some Chestertonian twists. Uh, so, but, but again, I, I, I don't remember what I felt. I just remember that the ending stuck with me so that when you, when you said, Michael, Hey, we're, look, we're going to read this novel. My reaction was, Ooh, because I wanted to revisit it. So I guess I must've had some kind of at least, positive sense of intriguing curiosity but uh, I had almost no memory of how the rest of the novel went outside of the ending right well like I said I knew the twist but when I read this novel for the first time last year I still thought what on earth did I just read yeah (laughs) I imagine that was probably yours too Nathan what on earth did I just read? Uh, to some extent. Actually, my first thought was uh, Gabriel Syme is Rod Dreher. But that's another uh, line of thought. <laughs> you, you're really trying to make me hate this novel, aren't you, Nathan? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I am uh, the uh, Lucy and Gregory figure on this podcast. It's fair. It's fair. There's a lot left to say about this novel. What would you guys draw our listeners' attention to? One of the things that uh, really jumped out at me as I was reading through, and, uh, and I'll go ahead and tell you listeners, I mean, of the three of us, I've probably read this novel the least carefully. I read it very quickly uh, preparing for this podcast. Uh, but there is a passing allusion to the Song of Roland. And in my mind, it kind of illustrates the paradoxical but ultimately conservative character of the story. And it is the line whose French I won't try to pronounce in Michael's presence. Uh, but it translates roughly into pagans are wrong and Christians are right. And this is fundamentally, I mean, you know, what this novel is picking apart at every turn and tearing apart and dynamiting and uh, otherwise subverting at every turn. Uh, because uh, once again, you know, this, this is Chesterton's uh, rhetoric, as I receive it, is that, you know, if you 
are entirely convinced that your opponent is wrong, then you will miss out on the way that your opponent is actually right. Um, and so, you know, the fact that this is the line of medieval French poetry that occurs to Syme as he is on the chase uh, just strikes me as very, very fitting for this novel. David? I think that Chesterton is at the level of the sentence, sentence to sentence, one of the most interesting writers in English that I know. Almost every sentence that he writes has some kind of turn or twist, like something that you have to, it's got a metaphor, it's got a strange use of a word, it's got a, an unexpected adjective, uh, a character says something and then the facial expression that's attributed to them as they say it is not the one that you, that you reckoned on. Um, so I, I just find a great deal of enjoyment in reading him generally. And this is, this is, this novel is very much in line with, with that general, uh, kind of sentence by sentence, uh, style that Chesterton has. Um, he doesn't do workman like prose. Um, it's almost like a cathedral that's just full of full of gargoyles, full of carvings. Um, it does have structure, but that structure is so buried under the ornament that it's kind of difficult to distinguish ornament from engineering. Uh, and I, if if you asked me to outline the plot of the man who was Thursday, I would laugh at you. But. I've got to, uh, you know, I, I think there's got to be one. I just, it's just hard to see under all of the strange, beautiful moments. I will say this novel's not quite as guilty of it as some of Chesterton's other works, but he loves the literary device called chiasmus, which is where you have a structure that is A, B, B, A. Uh, yeah. And he, he uses Dancing it. I, I, Sorry. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I, I just pulled out my uh, Farnsworth's classical English rhetoric, and he uses Chesterton as an example of a lot of these. But here's one. Um, here's one from What's Wrong with the World. Men need not trouble to alter conditions. Conditions will so soon alter men. The head can be beaten small enough to fit the hat. And he uses that chiasmus so often that it starts to sound almost like a rhythm in his uh, in his prose. And he starts to sound like the Sphinx from uh, from Mystery Men. Did you guys ever see that movie? Yes. No, I did not. Uh, there's a, there's, a, there's <laughs> yes. a character called the Sphinx. And his, his whole thing is is these kind of fortune cookie chiasmuses. And, and Chesterton, at his worst as a prose stylist, sounds like that. If you do not master your fear, your fear will become your master. Um, but uh, I, I don't think he's guilty of that here in The Man Who Was Thursday. Maybe because it's relatively early in his writing career. I don't know. But eventually, um, once you become aware of his use of chiasmus, it can be difficult to read Chesterton. So I hope I didn't ruin him for anybody. <laughs> it'd, be, yeah. it'd be a real hit if uh, Nathan tried so hard to ruin Chesterton for everybody. And I was the one who did it. <laughs> nice well yeah. thank you guys for bouncing through this novel with me like uh like sunday uh holding on to the back of a taxi cab uh david what are we talking about next week next week we're going to be looking at some of the letters of the uh apostolic church father uh ignatius of antioch 
Uh, I haven't selected which particular ones we're going to focus on yet, um, but you know, you can go read them all. It won't hurt you. It's about 25 pages altogether in the edition I have. Mm-hmm. Well, until then, listeners, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We do love getting your emails. Our website is christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.